Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global Review Columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. Saudi Arabia has assured the Biden administration that the kingdom is still interested in pursuing an agreement that would normalize relations with Israel after the war in Gaza ends, according to the White House. Saudi Arabia hasn't condemned the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas, and since the Gaza war started, Saudi officials have been critical of Israeli military operations. But according to a report in Axios, and I'm quoting directly here from the report, while the war in Gaza makes it harder to make progress right now, the White House says, quote, we are still committed to it, and it is clear to us that the Saudis are still committed to it too, close quote. News or phone news? Well, I uh, don't think the Saudis will be thrilled that uh, the administration went public with this. And it's not, to me, a, a great surprise, but, uh, you know, counted as news in that Iran's goal, really, with this with this latest attack, and insofar as Iran had anything to do with it, was it wanted to disrupt the growing diplomatic and security partnership that would unite the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia, and uh, suppose it fails. You know, they hoped that they'd create such a firestorm in the Arab world, both on the one hand, the emotional shock of what many people will read as a victory, horrible as that sounds, by the invasion itself, and then in the reaction as people get furious with Israel over civilian casualties in Gaza. They hoped this would be a one-two punch that would make Israel so toxic that these countries in the Arab world would no longer dare to try to get security against Iran by, by aligning with Israel. The Saudis seem to be made of tougher stuff. And so that's very interesting. Uh, if this fails, I think we, we may say that Iran has scored a tactical victory, but a strategic defeat. It would be a little bit like the Battle of the Bulge, where Hitler in, in 1944 tries an attack to split the Allied forces, reach the coast. And he actually, the offensive is pretty successful, and it causes a lot of casualties, but it does not achieve his goals. And at the end, he's sort of back in the same trap. Well, maybe, maybe this will count as Iran's Battle of the Bulge. I certainly hope so. That comment from the NSC spokesperson about how, you know, we're still committed to it and the Saudis are too, but it's hard to make progress because of the war in Gaza right now. Do you get the sense from the White House that, you know, this is them telling the Israelis, like, it's your ground invasion, which we've urged you not to do. That's the obstacle now. Or is am I overthinking that? I think you're overthinking this. I mean, it's just, it's very natural that you can't really sort of do a lot of negotiation while the war is going on. And also, because what will the situation in Gaza be when it's over? Part of the discussion has always been, you know, how can closer relations between Israel and the Gulf Arabs actually lead to some kind of stabilization of the Palestinian situation? Right. And, you know, you just can't say anything about that until uh, we see what's going on. But I think we can say that for the Saudis and the Emiratis, for that matter, the uh, Hamas is the enemy. It is both a pawn of Iran, and it's a hideous death cult that turns the entire Middle East into an uninvestable sinkhole the more it spreads, and it's a threat to their own power. They hate it, 
just about as much as Israel does. That's the thing that people have to understand to get the nature of this crisis. That it's not necessarily true of their public opinion, but it's true of of the people in those countries who think seriously and are and are sort of connected to the ruling structures. All right, our second story. Just a few hours after Hamas launched its assault on Israel, India's prime minister was among the first world leaders to respond. In a strongly worded statement, Narendra Modi condemned the terrorist attacks and said India, quote, stands in solidarity with Israel at this difficult hour, close quote. The statement was immediately echoed by India's foreign minister and a state minister from the BJP warning that India, quote, may face the situation that Israel is confronting today if we don't stand up against politically motivated radicalism, close quote. Last week, India was also among the countries that did not back a UN resolution for a humanitarian truce in Gaza, instead choosing to abstain. Walter, you are the India whisperer. Is this news or faux news? Well, there's a little piece more to it, Jeremy, which is that India has sent humanitarian aid to Gaza. Um, Also, the leader of the opposition, Rahul Gandhi, um, has criticized Modi's statement. So, you know, what's going on here? Big secret. Tip O'Neill was right. All politics is local. So there are a couple of things happening. One is that when India thinks about Islamist terrorism, they think about Pakistan, where they've had a long history of this and where they've watched with some horror as Pakistan, as fanaticism and terrorism have played a larger and larger role in Pakistan, the nuclear armed neighbor on their border. So for India, this is all, you know, this is very local. In the past, under Congress, India was much shyer about siding with Israel, although they didn't even have official relationships a lot of the time, but they always had good cooperation and things like Indian agriculture has benefited a lot from Israeli technology. But um, the problem for them was always Kashmir, the Muslim-majority province that um, has been part of India since the partition, but which is still contested. And the Indians in, didn't really want, they didn't want the Islamic world. Pa- Pakistan is always trying to turn this into a great Islamic cause like Palestine. And India did not want the Palestinianization of the Kashmir issue, so to speak. But I think uh, the Modi government feels that it has dealt with that um, by developing pretty deep relations with some of the Gulf states. And I think the UAE is actually invested in Kashmir under Indian control. But at the same time, as India moves toward a, an election in the spring, the um, Congress party is looking to gin up the Muslim vote, and the BJP is looking for, for anti-Muslim voters, to, to, or let's just say Hindu nationalist voters. I don't want to. I you know I, I don't want to get into all the communal communitarian things, but but it benefits the BJP politically to highlight the evils of terrorism, uh, is Islamist or whatever we want to call it terrorism, and it and Congress it benefits to try to show understanding. At least that's the calculation. So this will shock you, but politicians everywhere try to say things that will make voters like them. I'm just curious, does the BJP have Muslim voters? I mean, is there any? It does have some. I think it's 
it's a bit like the black vote black Republican vote in the U.S., like low double digits is kind of a normal place where it goes. There's certain ways in which it's higher. So for example, there are um, Shia Muslims in parts of um, the UP, Uttar Pradesh, and they're um, in around Lucknow, I think. And I might be getting these names wrong, so please don't shoot me if I do. The, the Shia Muslims actually vote for Congress in a higher degree as sort of, you know, maybe partly the rivalry with the Sunnis. So it's like everything in India, it's extremely complicated. All right, final story of the week. As war erupts between Israel and Hamas, a wave of anti-Semitic content is sweeping through the Chinese internet and social media, according to the Wall Street Journal. In recent days, searches and mentions involving anti-Semitic language and references skyrocketed on the Chinese app WeChat. On news stories about the Middle East turmoil, some comments have ranged from outright threats against Jews to intimidation directed at anyone defending Israeli actions in the conflict. The rising anti-Jewish sentiment on Chinese social media dovetails with Beijing's more pronounced support for the Palestinian cause since the war began and its distancing of itself from Israel. News or phone news? Uh, news. Um, I saw, What didn't they uh, publish a map that had taken Israel off the map? Um, right. I would, I tell you what I would like to know a little bit about this. One of the things I wonder as um, the Chinese government keeps tightening the noose and restricting space for civil liberty is the future of Chinese Christians. Chinese Christians are actually, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of them, so you can't totally generalize, but there tends to be a certain amount of Christian Zionism in China. And if you go to Israel in, in peacetime, you may see Chinese pilgrims coming to Jerusalem to visit the Christian holy shrines. Uh, and there are even ideas in among Chinese Christians about missionary activity in the Middle East as being part of the future of the Chinese church. So, it's possible that the government, and again, these governments sometimes have more than one reason for things that they do, by highlighting the idea that, that support for Israel and the Jews is now a bad thing, and intimidating people who start speaking up for it. I think there are going to be a lot of Christians in China who feel this as another tightening of the noose around their throats. So we'll have to see how this works out, but I've always wondered if at some point the increasingly repressive Chinese um, political climate is going to start real radically constricting um, Christian life in China. It already is to some degree, but it could get much, much worse. Well, now I'm convinced we have to do an entire podcast on Christian Zionists in China, which is going to be the greatest crossover event in history. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, part of what's interesting there is, you know, there's this history of Jews in China, Jews fleeing the Nazis in the Holocaust, ending up in Shanghai and Harbin. So there's that connection. There's the national infatuation with Kissinger. But more broadly, you encounter there a kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, like a positive anti-Semitism. It's almost like they see the protocols of the elders of Zion and think like, well done, very well done. Right. You know, there was a there was an article about this in Foreign Policy years ago. Yeah. So it's always been maybe a weird mutual encounter, but not at all what you'd call a stronghold of kind of classic European or Middle Eastern anti-Semitism historically. So, right. I mean, that does make me think it's this may be more a kind of state-directed than a some sort of authentic 
popular sentiment among Chinese people. Well, again, in the Chinese internet, if you see a lot of it happening, you know it's at least state-tolerated, whether it's state-sponsored or not is another question. The Japanese, by the way, also have some of this um, positive anti-Semitism sense of, uh, boy, those Jews are clever. (laughs) I wonder how, how we can get some of that. Exactly. All right, that does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. So as most of our listeners know by now, there's been an alarming rise in anti-Semitism throughout North America and Europe since October 7th. In the U.S. alone, anti-Semitic incidents are up a reported 400%. In Germany, they're up 240%. Britain reports the highest number in any three-week period since 1984. France, as of today, I think has seen over 800 anti-Semitic incidents since October 7th and has made over 400 arrests. The list goes on. What does seem to be different, or at least much more stark this time, is how prevalent the sentiment, if not necessarily all the crimes, has been among what you'd broadly call left-wing or progressive groups of people in particular. I think listeners are quite familiar with the contours of what you'd call right-wing anti-Semitism, given the history. But this kind of progressive anti-Semitism, I think, strikes a lot of people as a bit of a shock, or at least something new. Is it? And and how would you explain it? Uh, look, I think one should never forget that anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union was pretty deeply entrenched. Now, it wasn't the exterminatory anti-Semitism that Hitler practiced. Um, if you became a good communist and you had nothing to do with Israel or Jewish causes or Jewish religious life, you know, you might have there might be popular prejudice around you in the old Soviet Union, but the state would would normally let you slide. Although Stalin certainly his purges, let's just say disproportionate numbers of Jews died in the in the various purges of Stalin's era. And as he died, he was uh, preparing uh, the doctor's plot uh, uh, purge, which would have definitely targeted professional Jews. By the way, it's interesting that he began to worry about the doctor's plot shortly before he died. It's probably unwise to make your personal physician think that if you live, he might not. Uh, Just something for all of us to keep in in mind as we go forward. So anti, you know, and and the communists generally were principled anti-Zionists, the Enlightenment in Europe, which was definitely in favor of the emancipation of, of the Jews, sort of came with a catch, which was that Jews would be accepted. You could be a French citizen of Jewish origin, but that meant you sort of had to sort of give up the concept that Jews were a people. You know that, uh, and this is actually American Reform Judaism long had in its bylaws and so on, that Jews are not a people, that Jews have no political future as Jews. Their future is to integrate and assimilate into the the countries where they are. And you can tell even today where you see that in the U.S. Anytime you see a Jewish house of worship that's called a temple, that's telling you, we don't want to go back to some holy land of the past. 
because classical Judaism would say there's only one one temple and it's in Jerusalem. Uh, so by by saying we have a temple here, what they're saying is the essence of Jewish identity and community is found in the lands of quote exile, which you would more or less rename to lands of residence. All right. So and and the and the left and the European Enlightenment embraces this kind of concept. The Jews are now 100% French, 100% German, 100% British, but no Zionists. And it's like, fine, some people are Baptists, some people are Presbyterian, some people are Catholic, some people are Jewish, but nobody's talking about a separate Presbyterian state. At least I hope not. And when, whenever Jews begin to manifest a a nash a sense of na- separate peoplehood that you know you start getting accused of double loyalty of and and now it's like you've the Jews are seen as having betrayed the deal that allowed them in with everybody else and so the left icon- concept of a non-ethnic civic citizenship gives Jews space but limits how the definition of what it is a Jew can do. Now, Zionism is a problem for this kind of vision of Judaism. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, that very, very few Western European Jews converted to Herzl's form of Zionism and why so many of them were then caught up in the Holocaust. Um, because they simply refuse, they, they continue to believe, I am a German. I'm a German of Jewish origin. I got the Iron Cross in World War I. I love Schiller. I love Goethe. I love German culture. Okay, this horrible person, Hitler, who is a distortion of it. This is not the true Germany. I will keep my head down. I will survive. And so. It, in a sense, it took that kind of Nazi German hatred to break some people of of this sense of my I'm a, my Judaism is about my origins, Germanness is about my true my future. And uh, okay, so the idea of you know for Marxists, a Jewish state is a sort of petty bourgeois project. Instead, the Marxist vision is that all people, regardless of ethnicity, race, religion, should unite in a universal proletariat, creating a universal utopia where things like national differences and so on fade away. And so the Jews, the way for the Jews to solve the Jewish question, the Jewish problem, is for humanity to solve the class question. And if Jews are going to be fellow warriors for the proletarian future, welcome, comrade. But if they think they're going to try to carve out some little special deal for themselves, they're tools of the bourgeoisie, and they're the class enemy. So uh, Stalin, for tactical reasons, <laughs> supported the state of Israel, but that's a, that's a different story. So why then did Israel not just Jews, but Israel becomes such a darling of the left. And I have to stress, especially maybe for some of the younger uh, listeners, Israel was a left-wing cause, not a right-wing cause in the 1940s and 1950s. It was the favorite country of the democratic socialists of America. 
the one they pointed out over and over again as the one that had perfectly, better than any place else on earth, united the twin glories of socialism and liberty. And Israel was living truth that you could be a pure social, purely socialist country and yet also protect freedom of speech, blah, 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 all of these wonderful things. And Israel was a very socialist country. So that was one reason the left loved it. Another reason was the Nazis and, uh, and their pathological attacks on Jews were seen by a lot of people and not just on the left as the culmination and distortion, the sort of last perversion of a very old right-wing tradition in Europe. The right in Europe had you know, long been sort of thought of itself as monarchical and clerical, defending the old order against the evil revolution. And so the right in France, you had a lot of monarchists in the right. Um, and these types of people thought that you, you wanted good Christians, running, especially good Catholics, were the ones you wanted in your high schools and universities. In fact, after Napoleon fell, there, you know, there were examples of all over Italy, no Jews would be allowed to teach in universities. You wanted only good Catholics and, if possible, only clerics in those positions. So for the left to wrap, you know, to sort of tar the Christian Democrats and others on the right in post-war Europe was a way to, with anti-Semitism, to align them with the Nazis. And then when Britain is trying to, to prevent the Jews from having a state in Israel, and actually the case of Exodus, that famous ship of refugees, the French uh, supported it because they were furious at the British at the moment. But Exodus, the fact that the British then refused to let the Jews land in the Holy Land and actually literally forced them physically off to go back into Germany where they're kept in detention camps, in some cases originally Nazi detention camps. Every communist in Europe, every left-winger in Europe is going, see the capitalists and the fascists are the same. Look at how they treat the Jews. So it becomes this, this you know, way to really bash everyone you hate, celebrate everyone you love. Meanwhile, if we look at the Arab opponents of the Jews in the 40s and 50s, who are they? Well, the leader of the Palestinians went to Nazi Germany and actually— he was so anti-Semitic that the German race scientists figured out, oh, he can't possibly be Arab himself. I mean, you know, that disgusting mudblood of the Arabs could not produce an anti-Semite this pure. And so they, they finally decide he must be descended from Roman soldiers who were in ancient Palestine. <laughs> Because really, it takes an Aryan to hate Jews as much as he does. So you have you have that kind of thing, and then you then you have the like the sort of you know the Hamas or their heirs today, but religious clerics who have absolutely no interest in atheistic communism. In fact, hate atheistic communism, and so they're attacking the Jewish state on religious grounds. And then the other people, the Arab armies at the time, are basically British puppet armies. 
You have British puppet kings in Iraq, British puppet king in Jordan, British puppet king in Egypt. So to some degree, the Arab War in 1947-48 against the Jews was in substantial degree an English war against the Jews. And the, the British goal was that if the Zionists could be defeated, this would strengthen the hold of these British puppet regimes across the Middle East. The, you know, it was an, seen as an imperial war by the left, not a war of popular liberation or any of that. So that all comes much later. So you have, you know, here's a state, uh, you know, the Jews are like almost communist anyway in Israel. In fact, the, the elite military leadership of the Palmach comes from the party in Israel that's so close to Stalin's party that you really have to squint to see, it looked very hard to see the difference. And in fact, when Stalin died, even in the middle of the anti-Semitic pogroms he was launching, the the party newspaper of the group that led the Palmite came out. Their headline with that day was, we have lost our Stalin. So from the standpoint of the left at that time, all right, you had these wonderful, nearly communist victims of fascism fighting clericalists, fighting British cap puppets, and having... You know, this is like, wow, this is perfect. And so, um, you know, Israel becomes a kind of a, of a, to a totemic object for the left. All right, well, why on earth does that fade? And I will say, there were as many mistakes. The left, I think, was as wrong about Israel when it created this glorious fantasy of the Israel that we love it was, you know, as mistaken about that in many ways as it is today. It's a lot of politics, left and right, is about the illusions that we project onto the things that we love or hate. And that's just the way it is. Many people will perhaps will note that in their romantic life, something similar can be said to happen. That you that people often fall in love with a completely or hate with a completely imaginary person that bears only a tenuous relationship to, to the person that they're, they're spending time with and, and become fixated on, the psychology of geopolitics. <laughs> why, do this, why does it change? It changes for several reasons. One, when the Jews become less pitiable uh, after 1967, they win that war. Then even worse, they win the 73 Yom Kippur War with help from the United States and the evil genius Kissinger, blood still dripping from his hands from Vietnam, etc., and Nixon. So the state that is, there must be something evil about a state that Nixon and Kissinger would save. There, there's definitely some of that. But also then it, Israel becomes, that alignment is part of a realization in Washington and in Israel and in Egypt, because the Egyptians are thinking of this, that the alignment with, between the United States and Israel is now an, has become an important part of American Cold War strategy, which it did. And so again, the global left, which even if it's not communist, in officially, and so therefore forced to obey the Soviet Union in a way. Um, it's often subsidized by, influenced by, whatever. So during the 70s and 80s, the Soviet Union is funding the worst kinds of Palestinian terrorism, right? Just as today, Putin 
is welcoming Hamas to Moscow. This is all a replay of 70s and 80s Soviet policy in the Middle East. And so if Israel is now, you know, has has been embraced by the capitalist camp, furthermore, Israel itself at this time changes from having a basically socialist political economy to the Likud party, the party of Netanyahu and so on, is actually the Thatcher party in some ways of, um, of, of Israel. And so it did deregulation, market liberalization, may in some cases not enough, but you know it was dramatic. And Israel went from being one of the most socialist countries in the world to being much, much less socialist. And instead of being a poster child for the democratic socialists of America, it was becoming a poster child for young Americans for freedom. And to be so ungrateful after the left had loved it this much was really showed a bad character, I think. And so, and the left resented it. And in a sense, as the fact that as Israel, as the gap between Israel and the left grew, Israel became stronger and richer and more powerful. Well, that's really bad. There was another factor, and that is that the left in the 50s and early 60s in Europe was often supportive of of the final European colonial wars or legacies in in the global south, what we now think of as the global south. Uh, So the French alliance with Israel in the 50s had a lot to do with the French fight against the Arab liberation movement in Algiers, National Liberation Front in Algiers, Algeria. And by the way, some of the communal tensions in France today between Muslims and Jews, many French Muslims and many French Jews are emigres from Algeria where there were already on a diff- different sides of a, of a civil conflict. And so it's, it's just kind of when France left Algeria, the civil war sort of crossed the Mediterranean into the mother country, into the metropole. Uh, but as colonialism gradually began to assume in the minds of leftist Europeans the same sort of status that, say, race does— in the minds of progressive Americans. It's like the great national sin, the original sin, the reason everything is so terrible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not trying to speak lightly of any of this when I refer to it, but now the old left's support for Israel and their support for the French war in Algeria, which was related, right? This becomes a mark of generational difference between the old left and the new left that emerges with the sort of events of 1968. And so the hating Israel is more and more a mark of I'm in the new forward-looking generation of left-wing Europeans while maintaining a kind of regretful affection for Israel is a sign that you belong to the older generation and you've probably not dealt with your colonialist guilt very well. So Americans are a little slower, but you, the, some of these patterns that we see happening in Europe then happen more slowly, but happen also in the United States. And I think where we are now is reflective of that. You notice I've told this story without talking about immigration to a great degree from the Islamic world into Europe and the United States. 
Um, and while obviously that is a factor in some of the popular feeling and some of the um, less uh, desirable, you know, frankly, violence that we're seeing, the dynamic of the shift of the left towards an increasingly bitter and principled anti-Zionist approach is something that is not dependent on the presence of Muslims, but reflects sort of natural strains of development in the left. And of course, I have not mentioned the shift in the perceptions of the Palestinians no longer seen as Hitler's allies in World War II or those who refused to accept the fair-minded mediation of the United Nations in 1947 when the Zionists accepted the UN partition plan and the Arabs rejected the first two-state solution, which incidentally was better than any two-state solution that's been offered since. Those sort of things going on, you don't actually need this extra factor. But the the Palestinian question as they become more like victims and less like a faceless, angry horde, and as people travel more. I mean, I'm, the first time I went to Israel was actually to meet Yasser Arafat, and I've been, you know, I've been to in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Syria and Jordan, I and Lebanon. I've been to Palestinian refugee camps and settlements, and these people to me are not a faceless horde doesn't mean I agree with that, you know, and think their politics are smarter, things like that. I mean, it's, you know, but they're people, they're human beings. And for the left to see a power that's aligned with the United States, which is occupying people who are aligned with people who are against capitalism, against the United States, against the way the world works, of course the left is going to be drawn toward this. So all of these things are at work. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. I think a big hole in most people's reading, Walter, of literature, philosophy, maybe history too, is Arabic language writers. I think if press, most Americans probably couldn't name a single book in Arabic other than the Quran. And yet the contribution to world literature, philosophy, and so forth here is immense. So tell our listeners, who's your favorite Arabic language writer, or maybe name one book we should all read? Well, I'm going to be a little devious and just say Aristotle. <laughs> that we, you know, we in the West would not have Aristotle if it weren't for the works of the Arabs who translated him from Greek into Arabic and kept the light of learning alive and actually comes back even through Maimonides, is greatly indebted to Arab writers and scholars for providing this knowledge of the past. So in one sense, a lot of what we think we know about the classical past of the Greco-Roman world is something that we get from from Arab civilization, the Arab world, and I, for one, am deeply grateful. But if you want to talk about novelists, I really do. I just... I just love Naguib Mahfouz. His, I, is it a, I think it's a tetralogy, four novels about life in Egypt around the sort of 1920s and 30s. The first one is... Palace Walk. Palace Walk. Thank you, Jeremy. I am getting so old. 
<laughs> I I prefer to think I've read so many books that they <laughs> <laughs> that their titles are hard for me to remember sometimes. But Palace Walk is, and then the sequels are just magnificent, and they give you a window into this world of an ancient culture that's getting to grips with modernity where some people are right there, some people are way back. The other thing it, it certainly you get out of that series is how badly everyone wants a government job. <laughs> and it, does, it, it actually has helped me understand a lot of Egyptian politics and culture around that. Um, so it's not just a book of antiquarian interests. I mean, things have not stood still in Egypt since 1920, but it really does. It's for I think for Western readers, it's a great way in to Egyptian society. So, absolutely, uh, dive in. All right, there you have it. Thanks to our producer Noam Bloom and Will Cummings at Hudson. Thanks to my co-host Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. Hey.